Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Tuesday, September 13th, 2022. The first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. Ukrainian forces push further into the Kharkiv region. So Ukraine on Monday, they gained more territory in their northeastern counteroffensive in the Kharkiv Oblast. And if you're watching, I put in another map here from South Front in this area highlighted in green is all territory that Ukraine has recaptured in this counteroffensive. Now on Monday, they took more territory in the north of the region and pushed all the way back to the border of Russia in that area. Uh, Russian army troops withdrew from that region. Uh, according to some reports I read, a lot of them went back into Russia, into Russian territory. Um, according to South Front, this area is 8,800 kilometers, uh, square kilometers, which is about, which is over 3,500 square miles. So it's a pretty significant uh, chunk of territory that Ukraine has retaken from Russia here. Now, uh, a Russian installed official in the Kharkiv region said that Russia's forces were outnumbered by eight to one which is pretty significant. I mean, that's a sign that Moscow was caught off guard by the counteroffensive and had to retreat or that they planned, they didn't ever really plan on, on holding this territory and that it just wasn't, um, they didn't have many troops in that region. But either way, I mean, that's eight to one that, that shows that they, they weren't ready to uh, fight, beat back the Ukrainians that were advancing here. Now, if you look at the map of the overall military situation, uh, relatively speaking to all the territory that Russia has captured since it invaded on February 24th, it's uh, relatively small compared to that, but it was pretty quick. Uh, they captured this territory very quickly, so it's definitely a major PR boost for Ukraine, and it is hurting Russia uh, in that sense, so... Um, and just a reminder, I went over the stuff yesterday, but Kharkiv is north of the Donbass of Luhansk and Donetsk, which are the two regions that make up the Donbass. And Russia has made clear that a main focus of its war is to, quote unquote, liberate the Donbass. Um, so we're not, it's not clear yet if Kharkiv is, is a factor there, if they're going to try to retake this territory that they have lost to Ukraine. Now, again, Putin is under pressure domestically to escalate the war now after this, after this uh, loss. And there were Russian airstrikes that targeted Ukrainian uh, power infrastructure, uh, causing blackouts in eastern Ukraine in several regions. And that's a signal of a potential escalation because Russia hasn't really been doing that in this war. They haven't been carrying out what they call a strategic bombing campaign, which means just uh, crippling a country's civilian infrastructure, including uh, the transportation and power grids and stuff like that. The U.S. has a long history of doing that in during World War II, in Korea, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Iraq. Recently in, in Syria, when the, in the campaign against ISIS in Raqqa, they just leveled that city. Um, and their allies do it, the Saudis. Um, so... But we haven't really seen that from Russia, um, so this is a sign that they could go that route if they start to lose more territory. They could destroy the country more. Um, hopefully that doesn't happen. Um, but again, 
there seems to be no end in sight with this situation. And the Kremlin and Putin, they they kind of they downplayed Ukraine's success. And the Kremlin said that you know what they what they're calling their special military operation will continue that and that we're going to achieve our goals. And Putin, uh, he delivered some remarks at a meeting that was televised, but it was just focused on economics. He didn't mention this this uh, situation at all. Um, so. All right, the next one here, uh, the U.S. and Ukraine, they increased intelligence sharing ahead of the Kharkiv counteroffensive. This is according to a report in the New York Times. It said that Ukraine had stepped up its intelligence sharing with the U.S. ahead of its northeast counteroffensive that has seen success, as we have gone over. The report cited unnamed U.S. officials who said Ukraine started sharing more information with the U.S. on its planned operations. And the officials said that this allowed the U.S. to give advice and share more intelligence for this counteroffensive, although there's not really any details on how exactly the U.S. helped in this situation. We don't really know. But the story here is that, you know, the U.S. is kind of bragging that it that it helped Ukraine in its success, which is very provocative, uh, you know, thing to claim toward Russia. It really shows how intimately involved the U.S. is in this war. Besides shipping tens of billions of dollars worth of weapons into Ukraine, they're also sharing intelligence. And earlier in the war, the U.S. had loosened restrictions to allow real-time intelligence sharing with Ukraine. And throughout the fighting, U.S. officials have claimed that this real-time intelligence had helped Ukraine target Russian forces, kill senior Russian officers, and drive Russian ammunition supplies further away from the front lines. So the U.S. claims on ex- exactly how much this intelligence sharing has helped. Again, we don't really know, but this is just um, the U.S. really rubbing it in Russia's face that they helped uh, in this situation. And of course, they helped with the weapons. Um, you know, it's unlikely that Ukraine would have been able to do any of this without the billions in weapons that the U.S. and its allies have been shipping there. And um the U.S. also reportedly helped Ukraine prepare for its southern counteroffensive in the Kherson region, but that push has not seen much success. Uh, there's been some minimal gains from what I understand. They've captured some villages. It doesn't seem like they've uh, it's st- anything that they could hold on to and that they took heavy losses in that counteroffensive. And it also seems like they took some pretty heavy losses in the northeast um in that to gain all that territory that they did so that's another thing um is how ukraine where they're going to be able to go from here we don't really know yet if they're going to try to push you know into the donbass region um or if they're going to kind of just hold on to what they have for now we will see but that's just another example of how involved the u.s is on this war on russia's border oh one thing i forgot to mention i from the first story is that in uh, Belgrade, which is the Russian territory that borders the Kharkiv region, there was reports of shelling in that region, of Ukrainian shelling across the border. Um, and they had to evacuate a Russian town on the border. So that's a signal that the fighting could spill over in inside Russia, which could lead to a very significant escalation. Now, there's been uh, a series of attacks and sort of mysterious blasts inside Russia throughout the war 
Um, a lot of them target oil infrastructure or power plants, things like that. And Ukraine hasn't officially taken credit, but I mean, who else would be doing it? Um, so there has been those attacks ongoing, but, um, you know, when there's fighting right on the border here between R Russian and Ukrainian troops, you know, it could definitely spill over inside Russian territory. Um, okay. So the next one here, this is from Kyle Anzalone and Connor Freeman at the Libertarian Institute. NATO kicks off naval war games near a group of Russian ships. So the U.S. and 11 NATO members, they started large-scale military exercises in the eastern Mediterranean Sea. These war games dubbed Dynamic Mariner, they will put several NATO ships in a region where there is a Russian military presence, of course, at a time of soaring tensions between the West and Moscow. Um, so these are just, uh, you know, big NATO naval exercises happening while these tensions are soaring uh the next one here this is from defense one which is pretty interesting conservative groups are urging lawmakers to vote no on more ukraine aid so these are heritage action which is a sister group of the heritage foundation and concerned veterans for america they are urging co congress to reject president biden's request for 13.7 billion in new aid for Ukraine and that includes 11.7 billion for security and economic assistance and 2 billion to reduce energy costs um US energy costs so this is aid that Biden is seeking on top of the 40 billion that bill that he signed into law that's running out and before that there was another 13. Point something billion so the current total is over 53 billion and this would bring it to 66 billion and it's just interesting to see that there are these conservative groups that are uh historically especially when it comes to heritage action uh is different than the heritage foundation but they are related and they've been historically pretty hawkish and uh, favored a lot of military spending so it's interesting to see them come out against this new aid and hopefully we see more of this from Anybody, you know, we'll take it from anybody, conservatives, um, liberal groups. Uh, hopefully we start to see more opposition to this policy of just shipping all this money to Ukraine. Um, all right. I just want to take a moment uh, to mention our sponsor, How the West Brought War to Ukraine. This is written by Benjamin Ablo, and it's a great little book summarizing the steps that the U.S. and NATO have taken since the end of the Cold War, um, which played a major role in provoking Russia's war in Ukraine, the current war that we're seeing, not to mention the war that had been ongoing in the Donbass between 2014 when the U.S. backed the coup in Ukraine, backed the ousting of Viktor Yanukovych. Um, so it's just a very important book, and it's history that people, that they want you to forget, that the mainstream media wants you to forget, and it's summed up neatly in 60 to 70 pages here and people should buy it you can buy it in the description um if you're watching on youtube or odyssey or in the show notes of the podcast uh okay we'll get back into it here now we're getting into iran and israel we've had a lot of you know articles about this lately as the iran deal is just seems like it's totally dead so the top one of this section is israel's Mossad chief 
vows to continue covert attacks inside Iran. So this is David Barnia. He's the head of Israel's Mossad spy agency. He said Monday that Israeli covert attacks inside the Islamic Republic will continue regardless of whether or not the nuclear deal is restored. He said, quote, even if a nuclear deal is signed, it will not give Iran immunity from the Mossad operations. We won't take part in this charade and we don't close our eyes to the proven truth, end quote. So it's important. This stuff is important because Israel has a very long history of carrying out covert attacks inside Iran. And very recently they are they were behind some some deaths in this past spring. And this is something that really was went very underreported, I thought. So I linked to an article that I wrote about it. Um, really, the big one was in May when a colonel in Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps was gunned down in Tehran. And that, according to U.S. officials, because Israel never officially acknowledges, officially takes credit for these types of operations. But according to U.S. officials speaking to multiple media outlets, CNN, The New York Times, to name a few, uh, Israel was behind this. They gunned down this IRGC colonel. And Israel was also likely behind the death of a young Iranian engineer who was killed in a drone attack on an Iranian military facility outside of Tehran. This is around the same time. And Israel suspected because it has launched similar operations against Iranian facilities in the past that we know Israel was behind. And these aren't like uh, big drones that you know, like Reaper drones and 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 stuff like the U.S. uses in its drone strikes. It, uh, they're smaller drones that were likely launched from inside Iran um, and kamikaze type drones, I believe. And also Iran suspected Israel of being behind the killing of two Iranian scientists that were poisoned. Uh, according to Iranian officials, they, they believe that Israel was behind that. So, I mean, that's uh, four deaths that Israel was likely behind very recently, and there was more. And and and, and uh, there were Iranians dying that were involved in Iran's aerospace industry, their military industrial, uh, their military industry, and stuff like that were dying and and labeled as martyrs, kind of suggesting that they were killed. So this really ramped up at the end of May into June. So, um. You know, you, you just imagine any other country doing stuff like that inside uh, a, another sovereign country. It's just really uh, incredible what Israel can get away with. Um, so anyway, uh, responding to Barney's threat, an Iranian foreign ministry spokesperson said, quote, we do not expect a terrorist regime to do anything other than terrorist actions, end quote. Barney's comments, they come after he visited Washington last week, where he met with a series of high-level U.S. officials to work against a potential revival of the nuclear deal, which seems more and more unlikely. Barney and other Israeli officials say that force must be used against Iran to prevent Tehran from acquiring a nuclear weapon, but Iran often responds to Israel's covert attacks by increasing the, their nuclear activity and then our Israel then turns around and points to that reaction as evidence that Iran is working toward a bomb. So it's this cycle, Israel attacks Iran, Iran, say, steps up uranium enrichment, and then Israel says, aha, see, they're trying to make a nuclear weapon. The examples I could think of there at the end of 2020, the U.S., uh, sorry, not the U.S., Israel killed Mohsen 
Fakhrizadeh. He was an Iranian scientist. He was assassinated. And after that, Iran started, increased its uranium enrichment to 20%. And then in April of 2021, when the Biden administration and Iran first started negotiations that have dragged out for uh, almost two years now, uh, Israel launched an attack on Iran's Natanz nuclear facility. It was an explosion. It seems like they planted an, ex- an explosive device. So it was clear an effort to sabotage negotiations. The U.S. didn't have anything to say about it. You know, they couldn't even bring themselves to condemn it. And Iran responded by enriching some uranium at 60%. And that's the highest level they've ever attempted. It's still lower than the 90% needed for to make a bomb. So even if they have a stockpile of some 60% uranium, it doesn't really mean anything because they can't make it into a bomb. And anyway, their stockpile of that higher level is very small. Most of it is lower levels under 20%. But anyway, um, it's just an example. Israel uses force. Iran does that. And this is what this is what they get. So the idea that they are against the JCPOA and stuff, um, it just shows that it's not really about their nuclear program. Uh, and more on that in this next one. A senior Israeli official says that the Iran nuclear deal talks are dead. So we've seen a few stories like this recently, but this is more. Um, this is an unnamed senior Israeli official, but he was speaking to reporters uh, as part of a delegation in Germany. It's not like it was just some random leak to the press. This was uh, comments to the to two reporters while on this this delegation to Germany with Yair. Lapid, the Israeli prime minister, this official said, quote, there's not going to be a JCPOA, uh, say the Americans and most Europeans. They say we have a lot of reservations about the possibility of a nuclear agreement. There are no talks right now with Iran. There is no one in Vienna, end quote. So Vienna is where the talks have been held, um, the negotiations, and nobody's been there for a while. This Israeli official is saying, it's done, um, which, again, we've seen other reports that that say that the U.S. has conveyed that to Israel, that at least for now, there's no deal that's happening. The Israeli official claimed that Israel presented the European JCPOA signatories with evidence that they're saying proves that Iran is lying while these talks were going on, but the official didn't elaborate, and Israel is very notorious for sharing questionable intelligence. On Iran, I linked to a good article from Gareth Porter about that. Um, so now Israel is not a signatory to the JCPOA. The JCPC, C, sorry, excuse me, st- uh, stumbled on my words there for a minute. Uh, the JCPOA signatories currently, since the U.S. has pulled out, are Iran, France, Germany, the U.K., China, and Russia. But Israel still, of course, is very influential over the U.S. foreign policy, and they have major influence, and they've just been heaping on all this pressure. And the Israeli official said that it's time for the U.S. and Europe to start talking about a longer and stronger deal by using the threat of military action as leverage. The official said, quote, it's time to start a strategic dialogue with the Americans and Europeans about a longer, stronger agreement. But what we need now is for the Americans to put a credible military threat and everyone to push for a better agreement. We need an agreement without sunset clauses, end quote. So the sunset clause refers to the fact that 
the JCPOA doesn't last forever. It eventually expires. And that's really because this deal is just a trust building exercise. Um, and Iran is a signatory to the non-proliferation treaty. So the idea of the JCPOA was to just build trust ultimately between the West, the US and Iran. And after it expired at that point, hopefully the idea was they would be getting along enough that they would trust that the MPT would be good enough and continue trading and sanctions would be kept off Iran. But of course that didn't happen. Um, but just the irony of this, which I always have to mention is that again, Iran's a signatory to the non-proliferation treaty. And that treaty is a, is a, uh, Israel refuses to sign it because they have a secret nuclear weapons program and uh, an undeclared nuclear stockpile. And that's just always missing from the conversation. So I got to always mention it. The next one here, more just bad news when it comes to Iran. Uh, German Chancellor, Chancellor Olaf Scholz said Monday that he does not expect an agreement with Iran to revive the JCPOA to be reached anytime soon. So it's just the latest sign that this deal is dead. And he made these comments with Lapid while he was in Germany. Um, so the next one here, that's it for Iran. So barring any miracles, it looks like that deal is dead and no sanctions are going to be lifted. And, you know, this was really brought about this European push because that's who pushed it was the EU was brought about because they're facing these soaring energy prices because the sanctions on Russia are backfiring. So um, we don't know exactly what the big disagreement was between the U.S. and Iran. We know they were at odds over guarantees, the IAEA's investigation into uranium traces, and possibly just the sanctions that the U.S. was willing to lift. It might not have been enough for Iran. Um, but anyway, the next one here... This is the last news story from Jason Ditz. ISIS kills seven U.S.-backed fighters in eastern Syria. So there was an ISIS attack against the Kurdish-led SDF, which is the force that the U.S. backs in eastern Syria as part of the U.S. occupation of that area in Syria. And, um, oh, so it was uh, related to an SDF operation uh, on a camp that houses tens of thousands of former ISIS fighters. So ISIS released a video showing the killing of six Kurds who had been captured in the operations. The six were all captured alive and executed later. The U.S. and SDF, Jason explains how they took materially all of the ISIS territory in Syria and herded the remnants, including civilians, into camps. So it's a really bad situation for people that are stuck in these camps with these uh, ISIS fighters. And there's a prison, too, and there's a bunch of child prisoners. And the countries that a lot of these people are from don't want to take them. So it's a really uh, just horrible situation for the people that are stuck in the middle of it. Um, and there's been reports of this ongoing unrest in these camps. And, you know, of course, this is a breed, can be a breeding ground for ISIS to recruit when people are stuck in such terrible situations. Um, you know, they're more likely to... Uh, lean towards that extremism. Um, but so this is uh, really um, when it comes to territory, ISIS just doesn't really control any territory in Syria anymore. And on, on paper, officially the U S is in Syria to back the SDF against ISIS. But um, 
it's also their presence is about putting the pressure on Damascus, uh, the economic warfare against the Syrian government, against the country of Syria. It's all part of that, too. There's the oil in eastern Syria, the wheat fields that the U.S. is controlling. Um, so it's just a really bad situation overall. Uh, but that's it for today. Um, you guys can contact the show, news at antiwar.com. Support the show, antiwar.com slash donate. Buy some merch. We got some great T-shirts and stuff. The link is down below. You can find that. I will be back tomorrow with some more news for you guys. Uh, I'll talk to you. talk to you then. Thanks for listening.